Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises, so you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com backslash fried egg, member SBIC. Today I'm joined by Professor Andrew Urbacheski and Ryan Elmore from the University of Denver's Department of Business Information and Analytics. Andrew and Ryan put together a study on loss aversion in professional golf, specifically looking at how changing the par of a hole in the U.S. Open affects scoring. I won't spoil the podcast, but this study has some implications for professional golf and the way golfers think overall. So without further ado, here's Andrew and Ryan. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So you guys are both at the University of Denver in uh, business analytics. How did this paper that you wrote about loss aversion in professional golf come about? I think it was really as we were working on a, another paper that was looking at streaks in golf and that we had been working on for a while. And you know, I had a graduate assistant compile a bunch of the data that was looking at our is there really a such thing as the hot hand? And we've seen plenty of research on the hot hand in basketball, uh, in baseball, uh, lots of different domains. Uh, and then we started thinking about it in golf, that is there really a such thing as the birdie barrage or the bogey train? Uh, and we wound up uh, going through a set of data from 2013 and 2014, looking at all the PGA tours and it was a lot of data massaging we had to go through to figure out uh, which uh, you, you would normally think that people just play holes one through 18 and we could just look and see are they making strings of birdies or strings of bogeys. But you have to figure out from this, did they start on the front or did they start on the back? Was it a split course tournament? Was there a rain delay that got involved uh, and you're completing rounds on different days? Uh, a lot of different data analysis that we did and what we found in that paper was that there really, when you control for everything, like difficulties of the whole individual skill, uh, that there's really no such thing as a hot hand effect, that somebody making a birdie on one hole is not really more likely to make a birdie on the next hole, but there is a huge uh, cold hand effect, that somebody can get on the making a bogey and then they're much likely to do much worse on the next hole or holes following. So it's uh, a lot tougher to get off of that uh, bogey train. So we, we published that paper in the Journal of Sports Analytics. Uh, and then we were just continuing to talk about golf. And for whatever reason, uh, well, there was also the uh, Condiments book, you know, came out about that similar time, I would say. I, or at least, sorry, not Condiments book, um, Michael Lewis's book. I had read that. And you were talking about something related to either prospect theory or something along those lines. 
the, the idea is all Andrews. Um, well, it's, and really, it's one of those chance conversations. We're just sitting around one day and it's like, you know, it, the USGA and, you know, everybody's got their opinions about the USGA, but we're just sitting around. I think it was one summer around the open and we we're just talking about this idea of protecting par. And it's like, why do these people call holes par fives or par fours? And then we just started getting into some of the research. So what what's the uh, paper called that's about the hot hand? Uh, on the hot hand in golf. Well, hot and cold hands. Because we found the cold hands, we had to add cold hand in there as well. I can send you a copy if you're interested. I, I'm extremely – that might be podcast number two of this. <laughs> we might just roll right into it after this. But uh, with uh, – with with regards to the loss aversion, I I have to admit I've been uh, I've been misrepresenting your paper. I'm I'm very embarrassed. <laughs> I skimmed it. I had you know I was talking to the person that sent me it, and I kind of flipped it wrong. And I've mentioned it on a couple podcasts, and I I've I've been I've been misrepresenting this paper, and I have to apologize to the listeners, but also you guys as uh, people that put it together. So the paper is is called loss aversion in professional golf. Your theory that you started out with was that players uh, spend more energy and concentrate more on playing a hole in four strokes, a, four, a par four, than a par five. So if, if a hole becomes less par, players will score less on it. And so you started with this and you know the paper came about from a conversation. How did you go about tackling this, this project? You know, actually, we, you know, we talked about it and we, we just seen, boy, you know, maybe there's an effect here. Maybe not. I don't really know. And we reached out to the United States Golf Association and uh, Victoria Student, uh, her name is Victoria Student, in their uh, uh, history group, uh, reached back out to us pretty quickly and not only gave us data on the two holes that we were interested in in the beginning, which was the ninth at Oakmont and the second at Pebble, but any U.S. Open that had ever happened where they had changed the holes from par fives to par fours. Uh, and most of them were unusable for us as we we're looking at the data because they'd either lengthened the hole by 70 yards or sh uh, shortened it. Or it was like Chambers Bay when they're playing uh, 18 as a par four one day and par five another, but it's 100 yards difference. Uh, you know, and so we looked at it and did some real preliminary analysis and we found, boy, there's there's a big effect here. They take the same hole, they call it a par four instead of a par five, and all of a sudden they're scoring much better. Uh, and this was then aligned with some other research that we had found uh, earlier as we were trying to see who else had done this. And a couple of economists at the uh, University of Chicago uh, back in 2011, uh, Devin Pope and Maurice uh, Schweitzer, in fact, uh, Ian Fillmore may have studied under them, uh, looking at was uh, calling uh, is Tiger Woods loss averse uh, persistent bias in the face of experienced competition and high stakes where they had gone through and looked at a whole lot of different data on putting and just looking at putting on golf courses and laser measurements and they looked at uh, something like two and a half or three million putts and then tried to figure they figured out that people were more likely to make the same putt if the putt was for par as opposed to if the putt was for birdie. Looking at that as evidence of loss aversion, like if it's uh, – uh, that they're really going to try harder when it becomes that. And the, the paper was really interesting, but to us it was – 
it was a little bit complicated for the average layperson to understand that by the time that they had gone through uh, all of the, the research, it would have been really hard for uh, somebody that wasn't trained well in economics and statistics to understand what it was that they were really doing. Um, but we thought, boy, we've got a real, what economists call natural experiment mm-hmm. out there that uh, the, the perfect natural experiment would be to tell half the people this holds a par five, the other half that it's a par four, and just see what they do. Um, we're trying, we, we're racking our brains trying to figure out how we might be able to do something like that. Uh, the other day I was even talking about going to the mini golf course and just handing out <laughs> scorecards to your average Joe and saying, you know, this hole is a par three or this hole is a par four and seeing how people uh, do on that. We figured out pretty quickly it's probably not a great idea. Um, so, but that's where we came to it. As a as a background, uh, just for listeners, what is loss aversion? Sure. Uh, loss aversion came uh, from a paper in 1979 by uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Uh, Amos Tversky is uh, now deceased, but people may have heard of uh, Danny Kahneman. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for much of his work there. And then he had a 2012 or 13 text called Thinking Fast and Slow that became a New York Times bestseller that explained a lot of the behavioral economics uh, concepts, one of which was this uh, idea of loss aversion. And in loss aversion, the it's, it's most simply states that people value something that they already have greater than what other people would value it for. And that individuals, uh, if you're looking at a, uh, a choice between gains and losses, that they, the pain of the loss hurts much more than the, uh, the reward. reward of the gain. With golf, as you mentioned with putting, people make more par putts because they fear the bogey putt than they want the gain of a birdie putt. What would be some other examples in other sports? Boy, in other sports. Um, um, I mean, there, there's, you know, it's kind of closely related to some extent risk aversion. Um, so there's, you know, fourth down opportunities in the NFL are you know, coaches tend to not go for, you know, go for it because they're worried about uh, more than they're worried about getting, you know, or more than they want to get that first down. So they just punt it, you know, where they shouldn't probably be going for it on more fourth downs. But that's a, you know, not the same problem. It's it's very similar though, because there are, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. So for the paper, you, you've zeroed in on two of the most historic uh, venues uh, for the U.S. Open. You've got Pebble Beach and, uh, and Oakmont. So each of them have hosted it a number of times, which I imagine is very important for the study. So you, you want to look at hole number two, which changed to a par four at Pebble Beach in uh, 2000. And then you did the same thing with Oakmont's ninth hole, which went from a five to four for the 2004 championship and since has continued on. So Pebble Beach's second hole this year will be for the 2019 U.S. Open will be a par four again. What? How did you start with this study? What did you? What did you, you compile the data and what did were the early findings and the you know early kind of steps towards getting to this this working towards this hypothesis? Okay. Well, 
initially Andrew uh, got the data for Pebble, and he just did a quick look, just looking at the average score across the across hole number two, you know, through the through the years, and he was like, "There's clearly a difference here," you know, just looking at your raw averages of you know how many strokes were actually scored on a particular hole, and so then um, we got Oakmont a little while later and decided to control for uh, various variables, um, including, you know, the year that it was played. Um, geez, I guess it, it just the, the whole difficulty yeah, the whole rating, uh, looking at not just those holes, but other holes, because one hypothesis might be the entire course is getting easier. And so then, uh, you could just say that technology is caught up and everybody now is just you know, berating these or you know, beating these golf courses into submission. And so we had to, what we found was uh, that really was not the case. And uh, particularly when you look at Pebble and you look at the other par fives, there was uh, certainly not this uh, increase that came uh, during the 2000 Open or the uh, 2010 Open. And then when we looked at uh, 20, 2007 and 2016 uh, at Oakmont, we even controlled for the uh, round numbers as we're looking at them because some of the guys aren't going to be playing as well that first round. You know, if you go and shoot 80, maybe you're not trying as hard in the second round knowing that you're going to be trunk slamming on Friday. Uh, so we looked at people that played two rounds and people that played four rounds um, looking across those things. And we still found every variable that we tried to control for that might be an alternate explanation as to why uh, we're seeing this precipitous drop on these two holes. Uh, we were able to explain away. Yeah, and I think I think it's particularly um, notable when you just zero in on the other par fives because you see, you know, you don't see the same behavior on the other par fives, whereas you might expect that you know, driver technology is getting better. So of course they're going to play the par fives in a different way, but um, you don't you don't see that drop in scores across those par fives. Yeah, and I think that would be like the immediate thing I would think is like, well, they're hitting the ball further than ever. How, you know, how is this? But, you know, you guys obviously factor that in by looking at other holes. I imagine, did you look at holes that stayed the exact same yardage that might not have changed par? Yeah, certainly looking at uh, uh, 14, which at Pebble, which continues to be the, one of the hardest par fives uh, on the entire tour uh, each year. Uh, and 18 uh, as well. 14 lengthened a little bit. 18 has stayed that same length, that same iconic uh, uh, group there, and there's just no change when you look at 18. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anywhere they could move that T to. How about building an island? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think there'd be outrage if they did anything to that hole. <laughs> Remember the outrage when they built the seawall? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, you. You do anything to 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 that course, and there's going to be people on either side of the fence. You do this with the ninth at Oakmont and and Pebble, and what do you find? Basically, that the the scores post change are are better relative to you know you're you're scoring higher relative to par, but that's just you know, that doesn't really matter. The, 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 the result is that your average strokes for a given for those two holes decreased once you change the par from five to four. And so over, we found that it's really, the effect was somewhere between a quarter and a third of a stroke, which over four rounds is a stroke to a stroke plus, which is, you know, last year was the difference between uh, finishing second and getting into a playoff. 
if we took par and made it, say, I always say, if we, if we're playing like Wiley, for example, sure, like the par fives are are so short; they're in actuality par fours. If we made that a par sixty eight instead of a par seventy, you'd expect average scoring to drop two shots. Average absolute scoring on on the four the round tournament. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, so essentially a quarter of a shot per par five that you switch to par four, you would expect to, you know, roughly and over a four round tournament that equates to a, a, a shot. So, um, with this in terms of U S open setup and par, you know, par was a constitute that was just started for viewers. Right. <laughs> what, what would you expect to see if we just went no par? <laughs> you know, it's really crazy. And we, we went back and looked at some of the uh, articles that were being published when they decided to make uh, Pebbles number two of par four back in 2000. And so guys like uh, uh, Tom Watson, for example, that came out that uh, said that absolutely there's no reason to make this hole a par four. A uh, guy who had won the, the U.S. Open at Pebble. Uh, uh, David Duvall was the only one that came out that we could find that said that it should be a par four. Uh, and the only guy we could find that uh, actually said same course for everybody, doesn't matter what you call it, was Colin Montgomery. Monty. <laughs> I mean, and that's an interesting thing when you think about the mental side of golf is that you, as, a, as a player, you're always thinking about your score or your par. The best players aren't thinking about it, but at the back of their mind, there's always this par mentality in their mind yeah back, back before there was again as you mentioned tv and viewers and trying to allow the viewer to see at any given point how to compare somebody who's on number 17 with somebody who's on number 11 uh, at a given time they never even thought about it that they've just posted the total score over the four rounds but now you've added another variable that people are they get stuck in their head and they get thinking about it with the change, and I don't know if you know this, outside of just the scoring change, did you see any behavioral stuff with players on those holes? Was it that they were going for the green more or the, you know, when, they, when they were out of position, they weren't playing as conservatively? Or is there any sort of stuff that you found with that? The data that we have, we, we don't have sort of the micro level look into the U.S. Open that we, that we were talking about before with the shot link data. So we don't really have that information. We just have the raw scores on the, on the whole. So if they got a four from, you know, if they started off their tee shot went in the rough or it was in the middle of the fairway, we don't know, you know, which scenario that they had going into the green. Mm-hmm. So. And, and I imagine that you saw, did you guys look at any other holes, like the types of holes where we see a really long par three that's similar to the distance of a short par four? We, we referenced it in the paper, and of course the one we were thinking about was seven or eight, I forget, at Oakmont, that par three that the U.S. Open decided to make 300 yards uh, one day back in 2007. Uh, but those are really so rare, uh, unlike the uh, the fours and the fives, that there just wasn't enough to actually do any type of meaningful analysis. There, there's another whole, another part three. Um, is it Belfry, where they have the uh, the tenth at uh, at the Belfry yeah. uh, that goes what maybe two seventy five when they're playing the Ryder Cup there. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We don't have that. Yeah. I was thinking 17 and 8 at Oakmont could be two examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 17, they play at what, about 310, 320? Yeah. yeah. Right, right in that range. And that, yeah, it, it'd be, uh, it's an interesting uh, thought is thinking about the yardage as opposed to the, you know, the par and bucketing, you know, numbers and the yardage with, you know, because some holes, some courses, it will have 490 par fours versus 490 par fives. And of course, we live up here in Colorado where the uh, the balls fly significantly further. So uh, 520 yard par fours, even for the normal back tees as opposed to a championship is not that uh, unusual when they're uh, playing at, uh, they're going to have a web.com tournament this year at the new TPC uh, Colorado course uh, up in Berthoud that that's supposed to play out at 79 something uh, in terms of yards. But again, that's also at a mile above sea level. Both of these courses are effectively pebbles at sea level effectively and uh, Oakmont seven or 800 feet above it. I guess one thing I would, since they were both around like 500 yards, these two holes, say you took like a 600 yard par five and made it a par four. Obviously you guys don't have the numbers to do that, but do you, would you expect, would your hypothesis before setting out be that we'd see the same aversion? I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily extend what we did to a 600 yard hole. That's kind of pushing the limits of, I mean, I like to think that there might be an effect, but it's I, I can't imagine it would be as strong as like a quarter of a stroke or you know a third of a stroke. I, I think the more interesting part would be actually looking at that for amateur golfers. Uh, let's take something like 16 at Cypress Point. But uh, most of your average amateur golfer has no business trying to hit it over the ocean there and knocking it on the green. Uh, Bailing out left, uh, trying to chip on. If you make three, great. Uh, if not, uh, make four. Um, but because somebody's labeled this a par three, it's like I have to go and try and drive this ball on the green uh, over the ocean uh, and wind up making you know six or seven. Uh, a, heck, a heck of a lot more. What what you're saying is that for the average golfer, the situation might be flipped, where if you add par, they'd score better. Um, I think that it's put something in their minds uh, uh, there that it very well could be on that amateur golfer. As a guy that grew up caddying, I think about that all the time because when one of the things that the biggest problems with the amateur golfer is when they get in trouble, they just don't get themselves out of the trouble. <laughs> right? Yeah. Guilty. <laughs> Whereas the professional at the level a lot of where the game can be made is mental and the the difference between that you know number one and number 126 is so much smaller uh there than it would be uh out in terms of number one and number 126 at your uh you know at my golf club uh for example there it's you know one shot here one shot there is different between keeping your card and not if you guys were, you know, all these players have these big entourages now. Say Jason Day brings you into his entourage or, 
or uh, Justin <laughs> Thomas or Jordan Spieth. You're you're on you're on Team Spieth or Team Thomas, and they're they're asking you guys for advice heading into the uh, major championships this year. And obviously, you aren't you're not psychologists or anything. But what are you what are you saying to them? I let the guy from Kentucky handle Team Justin Thomas over yeah. here. <laughs> no, I mean I, I guess my takeaway from this is I would say try to ignore you know try to ignore par and just play your game, you know, try to, try to score as best you can on the whole. Um, again, like you're saying, we're not psychologists. So I, you know, I'll leave that to, you know, Bob Rotella or somebody like that, who's the, uh, the sports psychologist. But I think this paper would suggest, you know, ignore par going, if you're playing the U S open on this course, you know, ignore par and just try to go, you know, try to, try to play your best shots. There's the aversion thing for the birdie too, like where you're making more par putt. It, it, it's fascinating when you combine the, the study about birdie putts versus par putts with this study. And to think about if you could just convince yourself that every putt was a par putt in some way, because I imagine you see a similar thing with a bogey putt as a par putt. I don't know if they, that study went into that. Um, I can't remember actually. Ah, boy, I'd have to reread it. It's, it's the birdie versus par that I really remember. That's what stands out from the paper, and that's what they highlight. Because I, I would imagine that a, a bogey versus a double bogey would be similar to a par versus a, a bogey. You don't want to lose two shots. I mean, to me, the interesting thing is going to be, uh, let's say, looking last week playing eighteen at, at Honda. In par five there, you're in fifth place and you've got 245 over the water to the green. Do you really try to knock it on that green and make eagle thinking that it's going to get you up to third? Or are you thinking about, you know, I'm just uh, going to make sure that I get on the green and reg and I have a decent chance for birdie and I make sure that I'm going to cash a decent enough check? Um, you know, we hear some of the old school golfers talking about guys today just playing for a check instead of uh, playing to win uh, as part of their livelihoods. I think some people winds up entering into their strategy and some it doesn't. And some of the traditional loss aversion there doesn't apply as well because the, the pay uh, tables for these PGA tournaments are so top heavy that the difference between First and second is a lot bigger than the difference between second and third, which is certainly a lot bigger than the difference between fifteenth uh, and twentieth, even. Mm-hmm. So, it could, at a certain extent, when you are near the lead, the loss aversion changes. I don't know. I think right. it'd be interesting to study. It would be interesting to say because, like Morgan Hoffman last last week, was in a similar situation with what you just, or not Morgan Hoffman, uh, Wyndham Clark was in a similar situation to what you just described. And he, yeah, he is a Colorado guy. He, uh, and he goes for the green and makes a huge number, but he needed an Eagle to get into a potential playoff. And there's those situations are different for each individual. And you know, what, what we think about sitting there on 18 on our Saturday afternoon game is it's like, Oh boy, you know, I'm going to, have to buy the beers if, you know, I lose this hole, as opposed to some of these guys that are, are thinking, you know, I've, 
I got to make a top 10 to get in the next week. And if I'm finished, what's the difference between finishing uh, ninth and finishing uh, 15th? Then they're thinking more about, I need those last few FedEx Cup points. Uh, I've got to be able to make this birdie here in order to make sure I get in the field next week. Or maybe they aren't thinking about it. That's none, I don't think any of them will actually admit to it. Uh, great story about Zach Johnson at the Bell South talking about knocking it on that green and two back before he was uh, the Zach Johnson we know now and thinking about, wow, I've got to make this uh, you know 18-footer for Eagle. I finished fourth, and he winds up uh, four-putting the hole and uh, doesn't get into the tournament next week. Hmm. It's, it's, so if you were a long hitter, say a Tony Finau or someone of that, like Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson, where every single par five is reachable with an iron, week in, week out. That's the type of player that should go into every week convinced that it's a par 68. That would be my, yeah, that'd yeah. Be my advice, my strategy. It's, I, it's a good way of summarizing the paper right there. It's, it's funny because there's a golf course in Chicago that I play every couple times a year that's a par 73, and people give it flack. They say it's easy. And I'm like, well, I think about it when I play it. I always say it's a par 69 because like they have four par uh, par fives that are like 450 yards. And for me, that is a, you know, a moderately long player. That's a, a, a mid am like t- type player. It's not a par 73. It's a par 69 in my mind. And, and I always have- play better there. You had this conversation with uh, Jeff a couple of weeks ago talking about making uh, Carnoustie a par 80 and that it would be the, they'd call it the easiest course in the world or making the old uh, Bermuda Dunes uh, a par 64 and having everybody say, my God, this is so hard. And it's a, with this, with the, the USGA, they seem to be obsessed with score to par <laughs> as opposed to total score. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon that would certainly be one conclusion. I don't want to call out anybody at the USGA as to what they're thinking or not thinking, but uh, you're not the first person to make that observation. Because like I think about uh, Aaron Hills, and I always point out, like, hey, if, if Aaron Hills had been a par 70, Brooks would have won with minus 8, not minus 16. But in all likelihood, he would have been minus 10 because they would have turned the two par 5s. But the score his score would have fallen into the range of regular uh, the the scores, you know, typical scoring. Right. Yeah. If you, I don't know if you've thought about this, if you were, so it seems like to me, par is getting in the way of, of seeing these guys play the best golf they can play. So if you were going to prevent, present a model that, you know, pars made for the, the, fan to better keep track of players across the course. Have you thought about what might be a better way to, to, to show how a tournament's evolving with players in different stages of the tournament? I haven't, I would admit that, but um, that's an interesting point. No, not at all. I I really haven't uh, thought about that. And I certainly don't blame the television for, trying to come up with ways to make the fan experience better and how to compare people because that's the reason that they're playing for $9.1 million this week. Without uh, television, it wouldn't be. Hmm. My other thought is about looking at match play scoring. 
because in match play, par matters far less. You're playing against the guy. Right. And if I got to be commissioner, I would, uh, I would have 32 people making the, the finals at Eastlake and that would just be a match play tournament and just let the, uh, People say if we're trying to crown one champion, we're not going to have to worry about FedEx points this and reset that and whatever. Let's just set everybody up and we'll play five rounds and see who winds up uh, uh, being the best golfer for the year. Yeah, it, Ogilvy talked about with uh, match play how in stroke play he's building a foundation. And, and he's a guy that won the match play twice. Um, so in, in stroke play, you're building a foundation versus – in match play, you're playing the guy, but you it it frees you up to take more risks. Which, what do you think about what he was saying? Inherently, it, it falls into the same loss aversion camp where when you're playing stroke play, you're playing not to lose shots in some some sense. Versus in match play, when you're getting in situations, you're playing to win holes, which would be a much more mindset mindset that frees you of par if I'm thinking about it correctly. Absolutely. There's no scorecard needed when you play a match right. play call every hole part 20 or part two, if you want, doesn't particularly matter. You know, this podcast has turned into me pontificating on your guys' study. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's given us but, some ideas too. Well, I, you know, it was, uh, you know, as we're thinking about the rules and talking about some of the things about putting uh, earlier, you know, it was really, it was at a, a rule seminar done by Ed made at the Colorado Golf Association that he turned me on to uh, your podcast uh, from previously. So, Ed, if you're happening to listening uh, to the this podcast, uh, shout out and uh, thanks for all you do for the for the golf golfers here in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> so we gotta we gotta ask we got we got two two papers now about golf. I'm excited to dive into the uh, the hot hand cold hand paper. But what's next? You know, we tried looking at some things like thinking about extending loss aversion that sometimes you'll hear about guys, as you were mentioning, when they get into trouble and they're pros that they punch out and that if I have a name on my bag, I have to be able to get up and down from 80 yards. And uh, pre in past years, we had some access to some shot link data from the PGA Tour, and we tried to do some analyses on people getting – up and down from inside 100 yards for birdie as opposed to par and maybe the limitations of the data we just couldn't find anything uh, uh, that was there in particular um, sand traps we were particular sand traps we uh, we really thought that there would be a difference in uh, getting up and down for par sandies uh, as opposed to getting up and down from the uh, for birdies and the uh, we didn't really we couldn't really get any type of data that showed what kind of lie that they had in the bunker or where the slope was. And we might expect if you're coming in with a higher lofted club uh, that you're more likely to get some type of a bad pun fried egg lie than you would uh, if you're coming in with more of a, a, a flatter club, less lofted club. But there's just no way to know from the data that we have. It's funny you're, what you were just saying about the the up and down from the sand trap brought me back to tee shots and tee shots on I imagine and it goes back to the same thing we're doing here tee shots on long par fours versus tee shots on par fives where there's 
on a par four, if you hit a, a long par four, you if you you feel like you're losing if you hit a bad tee shot. So tee shots are probably. I would be really interested to see what the what the percentage of fairways hit is on a long par four versus a short par five or any par five for that matter. Because a par five, you feel like a lot of times you don't have to hit as good of a tee shot to still make a par or birdie. Depending if you're wanting to go for the green or not. I, I, that's something to look into, but it would fit It would fit into this where the scoring's better when you flip the hole to par four because all around they're hitting better tee shots that are setting them up for this quarter shot game. The, the loss aversion theory would should indicate that they would put more mental energy into it and then they would uh, be more likely to hit the fairway by calling it a par four than it would by uh, calling it a par five. Yeah. I, mean, it, I think a lot of the ideas that you're kind of riffing on here are, are awesome and, and, you know, a lot of good ideas for potential research projects. And I think you kind of highlight the uh, sort of the value of the ShotLink database that the PGA Tour made available. And now that we don't have access to it, it's kind of a, a shame because there are a ton of questions that could be asked related to the game of golf through, I mean, they, they've collected a, a unparalleled data set on golf. And uh, if, if they just keep making it available, like some of these questions that you're talking about will surely get answered. Is it would make sense that you would have some of the brightest minds and academics looking at this data. It, it, it's a shame that it's now closed closed off. For us, <laughs> you know where where you close it off, and inherently, like if you're the only ones looking at it, like that the but that's uh that is a shame. I I, I might uh, reach out and see see why they uh why they revoked it. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't stop collecting the data. That's for sure. No, it's still being still being collected. But hey, guys, I I appreciate the uh, the time, and uh, we will we will pump out the article when we when we tweet this and mention it in the newsletter, as well as link to it in the the post of the podcast. Um, you guys, uh, we're coming up on the Masters. You got any any predictions? My fantasy team will continue to suck. How about that? <laughs> I, I feel like you guys would be the worst uh, fantasy uh, fantasy guys to go against. I wouldn't wouldn't want to see you in my league. Yeah. <laughs> uh, seem to be zigging and zagging, and I mean, uh, you know, golf certainly has a lot of variance uh, as you're trying to uh, to do this. You, there's plenty of analysis out there, horses for courses, and. Uh, Again, trying to ride an invisible hot hand that uh, doesn't necessarily exist. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, study and data uh, that's out there. Um, one thing, though, that as you mentioned, the Masters uh, that brings back to a topic that you've had a couple from the last couple of episodes, talking about slow play and some of the potential. Uh, solutions maybe to slow plays or you know I I, I got to admit I loved uh, Ogilvy's suggestion about handing out the cash from the slow play fines to the uh, fast players on the uh, 72nd green or right there at East Lake while they're handing out the trophies that uh, we know that'll never happen but that would make for great television if uh, if nothing else but the uh, <laughs> the the loss aversion theory that we look at you know I really started thinking about that in terms of slow play and. 
the whole idea that they're fined and they're fined certain amounts and we don't know what they're actually getting fined. That's a confidential matter between the PGA tour and their uh, individual contractors. Um, but it would indicate that fines should hurt a lot more than rewards would help at a, a given level that somebody losing a hundred dollars just to pick a round number, according to loss aversion theory, that they would, they would have to have a gain of $250 to feel the same amount of change to their utility that a loss of $100 would. So whatever fines that they're actually getting, you would have to add 150% to that pool of money to actually get a better effect than maybe what they're seeing right now in terms of the, the uh, prize pool fines. Uh, if you wanna see the real loss aversion, start handing out shots. Yeah. yeah, right. That that's where you know the fact that there hasn't been a slow play penalty, and so you know there was one done in the Zurich, which they in 2017 or 16, where they and and they find two rookies and two club pros who are in the field. They did not find a big name or they didn't penalize a big name player. So the fact that they aren't penalizing people actively for slow play is is removing the loss aversion of playing slow. You know, when the when the Masters did it was 2014 or 15 when they handed out that two stroke that penalty to that poor 14-year-old Chinese kid <laughs> and an amateur who wasn't going to make any money uh, from doing this anyway. I don't know if they were trying to send a message uh, by knowing there was somebody that wasn't really going to take any money out of their pockets uh, anyway. I thought it might cause a big political problem to be honest. Another thing with slow play and and loss aversion, uh, this type of topic I would think about is what happens when a player is on a clock versus off the clock. Um, I thought that was really interesting listening to uh, Ogilvy's take on that. And boy, if we had some data on that to analyze, that would be be really interesting. (laughs) God, there's, there's so much interesting. There's so many cool nuggets you can pull from golf with the data now that can completely explain phenomenons, you know? Yeah. It's God, we got to get more of these. We need more (laughs) studies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can talk to your friends at the PGA tour (laughs) or or the people that you might know there. You you might be able to do stuff with uh, the LPGA tour. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Your interview with Juan was pretty telling about that. It didn't sound like he was, uh, uh, really wanting to do anything to limit access. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where you, you go. You know, I think they're they're starting to do more and more stuff. So that would be an interesting place to to go. And uh, I know that a lot of college teams, the the coaches are charting shots. Like they their players are charting shots, and they're getting strokes gain data for all their their scores like almost all the top programs that could be another area where you you start to look yeah our own coach here at the university of denver we've explored working with on a couple of uh different things and actually gave us access to all of the data that they had um since 2010 i think it was uh um going back as we were actually trying to help them with recruiting strategies the way that people are using analytics to help with college football recruiting strategies where they've got 85 scholarships to hang out in uh, division one golf, there's four and a half. And 
where you wind up spending that money for recruiting and scholarship money, uh, any advantage we can help our coach with here would uh, certainly help uh, feel a more competitive team. Theoretically, along those same lines, I'd be interested to see if you'd be able to identify, you know, young players with certain skill sets, like if they're, if they're like, obviously the, everybody's starting to look at like strokes gained off the tee as, as something that's a, you know, eight of the top 10 strokes gained off the tee made it to East Lake for the FedEx cup. Um, so when you start to look at a, you know, the PGA tour, especially with, you know, younger players building their marketing strategy, um, as in trying to identify, it's becoming more difficult to identify who is the next superstar. Um, looking and understanding what types of skills breed superstars? Interesting question. Um, It starts getting a little young and I start, I start having ethical problems with it that, uh, you know, when you and I were in high school, Andy, we played golf, but we, you know, we, we played basketball and played tennis and we did all kinds of other things and seeing some of these folks that are getting tracked at age 10 to do one thing. And I get these flashbacks to Ty Tryon, which is probably a name you haven't heard yeah. in years and years and years. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what, what happened there? Yeah, I, I it is the, the specialization of uh, of golfers. But I think this is a, an important thing where the de-skilling of the game with all the technology, with the green reading books, all uh, the, you know, the yardage guns, like essentially nothing is, is fee- uh, things are becoming less about feel and, and reading a shot quickly. Other sports, I think helps playing other sports helps like your hand eye coordination. It helps like, you know, being more of a reactionary player. And I think that's what is lost on some of these, on some of these, but the specializations obviously proving to be, vitally important and valuable at the same token. I'd certainly yeah. agree. Yeah. It's, I mean, these kids just aren't scared anymore too, because all their buddies are, are doing great things at young ages. <laughs> True enough. Yeah. So, um, we will, uh, we'll talk to you guys again soon. I, I, you know, we might have to do a follow up on the, the hot <laughs> hand, cold hand when I, uh, once I read it, I'm going to like try and read it actually this afternoon. So, um, <laughs> message right after the podcast yeah i'll um i'll 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 post that also in the uh preview and then you guys are on twitter people can follow you guys on twitter uh your handles are i'm rt elmore Mm -hmm. and mine is uh at prof urbicheski which i'm sure i'll have to uh be able just to look in the twitter feed from this to spell that one yeah we'll 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 pull we'll uh we'll plug that in but thanks guys and uh we'll talk soon All right. Thanks, Andy. Thank you.